0: Today, I'm speaking with Ellie Hasenfeld. Ellie is the co founder and chief executive officer of GiveWell. There, he oversees much of what GiveWell does, but has a particular emphasis on setting strategy. Uh, thanks for coming on the podcast, Ellie.
1: Thanks for having me. I'm a big fan of the show, so really excited to be here.
0: The subjective well being approach in contrast with GiveWell's approach.
1: Yeah, so first, I think it would be helpful for me to just explain what GiveWell is doing today, which is we cash everything out either in terms of increased ability to consume i.e. people have more money or reductions in disability adjusted life years some of which are uh, health related and some are mortality related but i very much take the point that subjective well-being is an important consideration you know we don't view the two outcomes we use today as the only outcomes that make sense they're just the two outcomes that you know we've been able to use to date and I do think over time, as we continue to grow and increase the size of our team, we'll be in a position to include more factors explicitly in, in that analysis. I, I think the the pro of subjective well-being measures is that it's one more angle to use to look at the effectiveness of a program. It's obviously an important one. Or I shouldn't say it's obviously, it seems to me it's an important one, and I would like us to take it into consideration. And then I think the downside is, or the reasons not to, might be on on one level, I think it can just be harder to measure. You know, a death is is very straightforward. We we know what has happened and the measures of subjective well-being are um, squishier in ways that it makes it harder to really know what it is. And then also, you know, I think some people, well, some people might say, I really value reducing suffering and therefore I choose subjective well-being. I also think other people might say, you know, I, I think these measures are telling me something that is not part of my sort of view of the good. And I don't want to support that. And, um, that you know, that would cause someone to, to try and uh, would want to leave it out of sort of their, you know, calculus and the donations they're making. I think in some sort of ideal world, I would love for GiveWell to be able to offer options for donors who have different philosophical perspectives about what they want to achieve. Obviously, GiveWell institutionally also needs to have a view because there's funds that come to us directly. But ideally... Uh, I think in in sort of the future vision of GiveWell, you know, for people who have subjective well-being as their core focus, other moral values, or maybe even a very different trade-off between increasing income and reducing disability-adjusted life years, uh, you know, or increasing dallies, maybe depending on how you think about it, those are programs we'd like to be able to bring to donors and let them choose because we don't see ourselves as being. I don't know. We're not trying to add value by being particularly good philosophically. That's not part of like give comparative advantage. And so it'd be better if we could, where donors want it, allow them to use their own judgments to make decisions.
0: The value of saving a life when that life is going to be very difficult to most people, it's intuitive that it's more valuable to save the life of someone who feels that they're really flourishing and is super glad to be alive than it is to save the life of someone who thinks their life is barely worth living, uh, who who uh, maybe doesn't even care that much whether, whether they live or die. And it, yeah, it could, it could be useful to use the numbers to make it a bit clearer how this might end up affecting your, your, your relative priorities here. If you imagine... You know, people scoring their quality of life out of 10, that's kind of the standard subjective well being scale. Uh, and let's say that we use the number three as the number at which someone is rating their existence as neutral, with kind of the good and bad things in their life canceling out. And that's kind of a typical answer for what people say would be the neutral point for them if they were scoring themselves. So, if someone is going to report a quality of life of 4 out of 10 for the rest of their lives, then from a well-being adjusted life year, a well-being point of view, then it's equally valuable to them to prevent them from dying as it is to increase their well-being permanently by 1 point out of 10. That, that would be uh, from 4 to 5 in this case. On the other hand, if someone reports a quality of life of 5 out of 10, then from a well-being point of view, it's twice as valuable to save their life as to increase their well-being permanently by one point, in this case from 5 to 6, because the difference from 3 to 5 is twice as great as from 5 to 6. So yeah, HLI notes that many people in very poor countries who otherwise might die of malaria in the absence of additional anti malarial bed nets have unsurprisingly pretty challenging lives with with plenty of hardship in them. And that, as I understand it, suggests that to them it's more likely to be cost-effective to make People's lives better uh, than to make them longer or less equal. I guess so. That's a very long lead-in. But uh, yeah, what do you and give or make of that sort of line of argument?
1: I think the place I want to start is I think this is a case where I feel most strongly that I would want to hear from the people themselves in low-income countries about this topic. And I think that's because I think if you if you kind of draw out this line of reasoning, it leads you to the conclusion that there is a very high proportion of people. Living in low-income countries, who would choose death over continued living, based on their self-reported life satisfaction, and that's a very uncomfortable conclusion. But maybe more importantly, one that is so counterintuitive that I would I would want to do. I, I feel the the need to like follow up on it before accepting it at face value. And so that maybe a somewhat minor point about like sort of where you draw the line on the scale. But still, you know, in this case. Uh, yeah, I think the the sort of maybe purely emotional urge I have is to say that doesn't quite seem like it could be right. Intellectually, I know it could be right. Therefore, I, I need to follow up on it because it's so inconsistent with my sort of starting point for what people would say.
0: Yeah, it definitely can get uncomfortable or or weird or or maybe if you were surveying people on the subjective well-being and you really said, you know, if you score yourself a two, we're going to take it that you actually mean that you would rather not be alive right now. Then maybe people would reassess because an interesting thing is that people almost everywhere in in the world when you survey people, even people in serious poverty almost always say that they think their life is uh, better than not existing uh, and that they and they want to continue surviving and so on. I you know, I've heard some philosophers say that uh that kind of intuition that we all have about how great it is to continue existing might be a little bit suspicious because we might have evolved to have that attitude. We necessarily almost have to evolve to have that attitude, even if, you know, our lives are very uh unpleasant and, and so that kind of bias might affect all of us. But you know, I'm 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 not really too keen to go there and I feel extremely uncomfortable. You know, if someone says that saving their life is really valuable, I'm I'm glad to take that at face value. whatever like and, and to trust that over some subjective well beings survey. <laughs>
1: Right, so so I mean, just be, so I think that like that discomfort is a good starting point, though not an ending point, and certainly something that we we are very committed to internally. Is uh, I don't know one of our company values or whatever you want to call it is truth seeking, and what we mean by that is we're not going to we're, we're going to have the hard conversations and keep digging to try to get the answer that that is you know correct as far as we can as we can see it, and so therefore in this case I would say I am very suspicious of philosophizing and reaching a conclusion that seems extremely counterintuitive and then running with it. But we're a place that wants to, you know, go deeper and embrace, be open to, you know, strange conclusions, or maybe I should say differently, like conclusions that seem strange to us today that will not seem strange to us in the future once we've spent more time with them and done more research on them.
0: whether economic policy is what really matters overwhelmingly.
1: I think I want to start with the the parts of the critique that I take on board and maybe what I think we would ideally be doing differently, but then move into uh, the critiques of the critique that I have and where I think it maybe is, is overstating its case. So I think the part of this critique that I, I really like and I've been thinking about recently is I don't think that we at GiveWell have put enough time into finding ways to explore the space of possibilities in this area, given its potential importance. And I think that that is something that I don't, I don't regret historically. I'll tell you why. But I do think going forward, as we've grown and as we continue to grow, I'd like to be in a position where we've explored this enough to have a, a really great answer, which either is we're doing this in this area or we're not because of this you know, pretty compelling reason. I think one of the things that explains GiveWell's history largely is that, you know, GiveWell did something very unique by going very deep on charitable interventions and understanding them very well. And a lot of how we've grown is by sticking to that core pretty intensively over a long period of time while we expand out in many of the ways that we've talked about today. And I think in some ways that is like our greatest institutional strength and maybe our greatest institutional weakness. We've been very focused on maintaining quality and rigor. And I think that has been very hard as we've grown a lot. I think we've been successful at it. And also, it has made us a little bit more deliberate in the approach that we take to things. Um, and I think that's a fair characterization of, of GiveWell. And so when there have been ideas that are you know more outside of our bailiwick, I think we've been just less effective at engaging with them. And I think that's something that we just looking at the trajectory we've been on in the last three years and how we've expanded, when I look out five more years with our growth, I think we will be in a much better position to be engaging more seriously with these ideas. So maybe that's the sort of the, the institutional critique and what I think we could do differently, but I'm happy to move on and sort of engage more substantively with the ideas.
0: Is it maybe the case that there's just fewer organizations who perceive this as their this is their goal, this is their direct mission in in the developing world relative to how many health-related organizations there are?
1: Maybe, but I think it's also a question of how you would attack this philanthropically. Like, I also wonder how neglected this space truly is. There's the World Bank, IMF. I mean, there's other institutions. There are, you know, the the sort of Washington think tanks that are definitely focused on economic growth, academics who focus on, you know, macro economics and how we can improve low-income country conditions.
0: Dispensers for safe water.
1: Yeah, so in many parts of low income countries, people don't have access to clean water, and drinking unclean water can lead to diarrheal disease, which uh, most importantly leads to death among children under five. This intervention puts a small chlorine dispenser near a water point so that when someone comes to collect water from a spring, a pipe, they quickly push down on the chlorine dispenser into the jerry can that holds the water. That puts chlorine into the storage container that they then carry home. And this intervention is potentially much more effective than other attempts at chlorination in the past because the individual collecting water only needs to remember to put chlorine in their container one time, right at collection. And also the chlorine remains effective while the water is in the container once they bring it back home. And so it reduces the need... Uh, say, for an alternative program, which would require someone to go to the store, purchase chlorine tablets, or get them from a nonprofit, have them at home, and then use them each time they choose to consume water. And that easier behavioral intervention makes it more effective.
0: Yeah. I'm not sure how much I would uh, um, sanitize my water if I had to. Every time I, I poured a glass of water, I'd have to stick something in it. <laughs> it, sounds, it sounds super annoying. So that's that's how it works. What, what's the prima facie or kind of conceptual high-level case for why this wouldn't just be good, but it could be could be amazing, one of the best things for you to fund?
1: So it's that unclean water leads to a great deal of mortality in low-income countries. Having a diarrheal disease not only can lead directly to death, but can exacerbate malnutrition, which itself is a risk factor for death from other infectious diseases. So it's a major problem. Then this is a very low... Technology type of intervention. It's very simple. It's like a plat. I've, I've used it. I've visited this in, in Kenya, and it just requires like pushing down on this thing to deliver chlorine. So it's easy to implement and then easy to monitor and follow up on. It's easy to check. And so you put that all together, it's like a fairly low cost program that has a direct effect on a major public health problem globally.
0: Yeah, so uh, just so I can picture it in my head, people are getting a big bottle of water from a well or from a from a common tap and then they have to stick a little chlorine tablet in it or is it kind of a, a chlorine spray that they stick in the bottle uh, once they're done? Basically
1: imagine that the person is carrying a jerry can. So this is like a
0: often a yellow, several
1: gallon container. They're bringing that container up to maybe a pipe or even without a pipe, just a spring that water is flowing from. And then right next to that water point, There's a stand that's maybe two to three feet high with a little plastic container that holds, I think, liquid chlorine. And you kind of press down on the pump one time, almost like a soap pump that you'd find in a public bathroom. And out of that pump comes the appropriate amount of chlorine for that jerry can. And so it's just dispensing it directly into the water container.
0: How to avoid attributing deaths incorrectly. I'm kind of curious to know whether like could these issues be quite widespread in investigations that you and other groups do of other interventions and other programs so you know each individual study of whatever other intervention finds no effect but then if you added them all together you'd find that there was a there, there was a large effect um or maybe you know they focus on you know a study on, on malaria looks at deaths from malaria but in fact it's had a much larger effect on on mortality than, than what's apparent because people are attributing deaths incorrectly do, do, do you worry about that
1: uh, it's definitely something that we're we're very focused on i mean for a long time When we've looked at malaria data, we've focused, when we can, on all-cause mortality. And of the randomized trials that were done on malaria nets, historically, a large number were on malaria rates, but a number were on all-cause mortality as a whole because of this reason exactly. Uh, I'll say that one of the lessons we took away from this is that back in uh, years ago when we first did this analysis, we insufficiently brought our conclusions to experts outside. And I think had we done that, it's possible that they would have raised this question in 2019 and we would have more quickly updated because we would have realized that we were too narrowly assessing the impact of the intervention. And that is a change we've made with some of the other programs I think we'll talk about in a minute. We've taken our estimates to outsiders and they've helped us see a broader picture of what they might be doing so we can home in on the best possible estimate we can.
0: Yeah. If I recall, there's another thing that uh, Kramer, who was the person who you know, did this early aggregation of all of these different uh, studies and, and tipped you off that maybe you wanted, would want to take another look at this. He had access to a bunch of data that wasn't entirely public, or maybe some studies that, that hadn't come out yet that allowed him to, to, to get a larger sample and, and, and notice this. Is that a common problem that studies get done and either the data is not, not published yet for a long time, or perhaps you don't have access to the specific numbers that you need from that study in order to aggregate it to, to get a clearer picture?
1: I think it is a pretty common issue. And I think that in many cases, when we go deeper on analysis, we're doing that via reaching out to authors and getting underlying data itself so we can understand what's happening. We've done that a number of times historically. Mostly, we're relying on publicly available data because the the costs involved, uh, the time costs really involved in trying to track down that data and get more of it, are, are high relative to just relying on the data that's already out there.
0: Bridging the gap between abstract arguments and ways to actually move forward. I think they would say, at least in the cases of countries going backwards massively, you know, we, we know things that countries shouldn't do that quite consistently lead them to have uh, economic disasters I, you know i suppose like causing hyperinflation is is one of them and they might say well at least it, you know even if we don't know what the very best policy is we at least know some things that are clearly bad and maybe more effort should be put into preventing those given how catastrophic they are yeah do you want to react to that one
1: i guess off the cuff they also seem like the countries that are hardest to influence you know what, if it's so well known then why are they doing it? Well, they're probably doing it because leadership in the country does not have their population's best interest in mind. And that seems like quite a challenge for philanthropy to address.
0: Yeah, yeah. I think that's uh, probably my my biggest concern with this line of argument, which like in general, I'm quite sympathetic to. Like you, I think there's a lot to it. But I feel often it's not appreciating that there's reasons that countries have bad policy, it's not just, or like very often it's not merely just a mistake, it's because of the political settlement within a country and kind of who has power and coming in and telling people that they could be richer if they change their policy one way or another. The elites often don't want to implement those policies because they think it would weaken their position one way or another or at least they're, they're not they're not suffering from from the poverty. So there's kind of there's this whole other angle of political economy trying to understand how do countries end up with the policies that they, that they do, given how the political system works.
1: But that's why I think like ultimately, yeah, ultimately like where I think GiveWell has something to, to add to this conversation, but sort of many of the conversations we've had is to say, well, we, we can look at it from the 10,000 foot view or the 50,000 foot view. That's important because it can help us decide where to put our resources. It's hard to figure out what's true from such a high level. And so I think like to some extent what makes me really excited about our work. What I think it's really cool. Is that we are trying to operate, we're trying to be good about thinking at the fifty thousand foot level, but then, you know, dig all the way in and ask what can we do in this case about this problem. And so when I think about this specifically, I have absolutely no idea what to give money to to improve economic growth in you know country A, B, or C. But I can imagine approximate step of finding people to spend time on this for a while and see what they come back with, and. Having watched a lot of different types of programs over many, many years, you know, from GiveWell, from Open Philanthropy, you know, more research often leads to new ideas. And so that's a really, you know, and so we're excited, I'm excited about our opportunity to support work like that because it can sort of bridge this gap between very abstract, you know, arguments where there's good arguments on both sides to find opportunities to actually move things forward.